you'll have to forgive me because I'm not sure if we have junior church. Do we have junior church today? I should probably know that before I came up here, huh? It doesn't like like we have any head nods, so we'll assume. Yes, it is. Okay. All right, you're dismissed. The sergeant at arms says we're dismissed for junior church. Not to embarrass her, but my daughter-in-law has this tradition of starting to decorate the house. I think it's in June for Christmas. I'm just kidding. But she starts early, and uh, at first when Colin and Cameron were... <laughs> I won't finish that phrase. When Colin and Bethan were married, um, that was a neat tradition that still goes on. And as I heard... Uh, carols this week. I've got this wonderful tree that Rocky and Mary um, donated to my front room, and I have been getting many compliments for people that come from Athens and tell me how nice it looks. I asked my wife, can I just keep this up the whole year long? I kind of like it there. And uh, I think isn't it interesting that in our belief as believers that we celebrate Christmas every day, don't we? I hope you do because we celebrate a gift of eternal life that keeps on giving and giving and giving. Hallmark's got nothing on the believer's stance in Christ. If you take your Bibles this morning and turn to the second chapter of Matthew, we're going to look at the follow-up from last week, Matthew chapter 2. If you're wondering about two songs this morning, it reminds me of a story of a man who took his son to church for the first time and the pastor got up and took his watch off and set it on the podium and the little boy says to his dad, Daddy, what does that mean? And he goes, absolutely nothing. <laughs> now that doesn't mean I'm going to go a long, long time. I uh, wanted to make sure we got the special music right because if you were here last week, you realized somebody got a little ambitious and almost left him out of the picture. Matthew chapter 2. Does it sound okay back there, Ben? Are we ringing out? Everybody, is this good? Can you hear me all right? All right. Good. Let's open with prayer, would you? Our Father, today we are grateful for the person of the Lord Jesus. That we can say as those who've trusted him, the longer we serve you, the sweeter it grows. Lord, uh, we celebrate Christmas this year with some family members missing, but we are grateful that they're celebrating the best Christmas they've ever had. And Lord, we're thankful for the promise that we will see those who are before us again. And with the gift of your life, you said that we have life and have it more abundantly, so as we anticipate that return and that reunion, our lives can be sweeter because we trust you. I ask that you would use the words that I speak to be clear. I pray that the word of God will be quick and powerful. I pray that we can take from what we hear this morning that you would use it in our hearts as to where it needs to be applied because we serve a God that loves us so much that he gave everything that he had in this life so that we could spend it with him for eternity. There are no words to describe what that will be like, but we know on this side of heaven we anticipate it because you've told us it will be a great place. Guide us through your word. Thank you for the privilege of sharing the word with you and for you today. We pray if there's someone here today that 
have never personally placed their trust in you, that today would be the best New Year's Eve that they've ever had. Thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. I pray, amen. If you are looking at our festivities for tonight, we'd encourage you uh, because Rocky's going to rock the house with fireworks after our get-together. So if you have extra blankets or chairs, we'd invite you to bring them as well as your favorite snack. Um, and if you have a problem with loud noises, you probably better bring ear, earmuffs because somebody was practicing last night out my back door and the French bulldog went nuts while he was sitting on the sofa. So he had to investigate the whole house and I've never heard him bark until yesterday. So apparently he can do that well. That has nothing to do with Matthew chapter 2, by the way. F.B. Meyer is a pastor and a commentator, and he had a quote that I came across this week that I think will open up this chapter very nicely. It goes like this. A miracle may be wrought to awaken and start us on our great quest, but the miraculous is withdrawn where the ordinary methods of inquiry will serve. Let me read that again. A miracle may be wrought to awaken and start us on our great quest, but the miraculous is withdrawn where the ordinary methods of inquiry will serve. I say that to tell you this morning that the word of God is quick and powerful and applicable in every situation. It never has an expiration date. Matthew chapter 2, because of Matthew chapter 1, picks up the narrative of why it's important that we celebrate Christmas every day. And we're going to look at that this morning. If you're taking notes, I'd like to share with you this morning the announcement of a new king coming, then the meeting with the new king, number four, the protection of the new king, and lastly, the providential care of the new king. The announcement of a new king, the meeting with the new king, the protection of the new king, and the providential care of the new king. So let's open with the opening verses. The announcement of the new king found in verses 1 through 8. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests, when Herod the king, verse 3, heard this, he was troubled, he was troubled, he was troubled, and so was all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it's written by the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring him back word to me that I may come and worship him also. I'd like you to consider when we look at the announcement of the new king, there are two things that took place. The wise men were captivated, but there was great concern. The wise men were excited, but Herod and the, says, rulers of Jerusalem were concerned. Why would we have two responses? 
Well, first of all, it's very interesting to note when you look at the beginning of this chapter, it says, wise men came from the east. You have Jerusalem, now it's your opposite, but up here is Babylon. Does anybody remember what happened in 70 AD? Or what happened for 70 years, I should say. We call that the Babylonian captivity. And in that exercise of God's judgment, he took Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember the story. Same context with Daniel in the lion's den. What's very interesting in Numbers chapter 24, it's actually what we call the um, Balaam prediction. That took place way back when Balaam was paid to curse Israel because the kings wanted to destroy Israel. Now hold on to your hats for a minute because here's where it gets interesting. What on earth would the Babylonian captivity have to do with Genesis or Matthew chapter 2? Where was the motivation of the kings to come to follow a star? Because the remnant from Israel in Babylon had such an impact in their community that 500 years later, these men are looking in their scrolls and the predictions of Daniel that came true to the very nth. One commentator writes this, it's fascinating. Against astrological odds, according to one estimate, a single chance of one person 500 years before a prediction, you would have to have trillion to the seventh power for it to happen. Jesus, and only Jesus throughout history matched that prophetic fulfillment. Why is that important? The impact of those three gentlemen and their buddy Daniel meant that before they were taken captive to go to Babylon, moved from their hometown of Galilee and maybe Jerusalem, something was integrated into their life by example and by word that so motivated them to live for the Lord that when the king said, you need to bow down before this idol, they were willing, under peer pressure, to say, no, we're not going to do that. Isn't it amazing that that story has an impact on Jesus' birth in Matthew chapter 2? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel were willing to live what they, were, what they believed and were taught because their parents instituted in their life, in their livelihood, when they sat down for a meal, when they were out in the garden, when they were out in the field, when they were working, their parents lived what they believed to the point that when they were taken captive, they lived that in a very caustic environment. Caustic to the point that if you don't do what this king says, you will die in a fiery furnace. And most of you here know this. The outcome was wonderful. Because as the king looked in the furnace, he said, who's the, who's the fifth guy? Well, king, you can do with us what you want. But as for us, we're going to serve God. Now, why is that important? The wise men were excited because what they read and predicted from these Jewish remnant in, in Babylon said this must be important. So not only was it lived in front of them, they preserved that information over time. Here's the takeaway for us. Because the word of God is quick and powerful, and it's to the point that the Bible says from Paul in Hebrews that it cuts to the bone and the marrow of our lives, it needs to be a part of who we are even when we're not in church, when we are with our kids. Because four men changed history for Israel 500 years before because they wanted to live the truth. And it impacted where they lived. So there was an excitement. 
these men came and said, where is he, the king of the Jews? Look at the title in the first part of this, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, you've got to remember, who are they saying that to? The ruling king. His name is Herod. Not a good dude. The Bible tells us from history, as well as other historical markers, that this was a really bad guy. Matter of fact, he was so evil. You'll find out later that he lied to the, the wise men. You've got to understand, when this montage, this parade, this caravan came into Jerusalem, word spread quick, and they didn't even have Facebook. Because usually, from what history tells us, we say there were three kings, there could have been 30. The only reason we tie three to it is because it says they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There could have been 50 kings. And if you're taking a trip from Babylon to Jerusalem, that's about 900 miles. Now, we hop on a plane, or we get in the car, we stop at a couple speedways, and we're there in a day and a half. They had to plan a long time ahead, as much as maybe two years. The interesting and the miraculous thing about that excitement was when they came to Jerusalem, they were religious astrologers. They, were, they called them kings, but they were authorities on the law. So Herod is sitting up in his castle, if you will, and by all intent and purposes, my study in psychology tells me that he was probably a paranoid schizophrenic. Because in one time he tells them, this is what I'm going to do. He panics. He goes into a, a very, very catonic state of worry. And then later on, he kills all these kids. So he really didn't mean what he said. You go find out what they're like, and then I want to come and worship him too. Because his actions spoke louder than his words. So when he saw this entourage coming in, it says also in the next verses that all of Jerusalem was troubled. But the problem here is it wasn't all of Jerusalem. The commentaries support that when it says all of Jerusalem, it was the religious leaders. Now here's what we have from this. We have a king who wants to be in charge. He's maniacal. He's cynical. He's loony. Because it says he was so encrouched in, in, in his position. History records that he had his wife and his three sons and relatives executed because he thought they were going to take the crown from him. So add that to a maniacal, heretic king. And somebody knocks on the door and says, did you see out the front door what's coming down Main Street? There's a lot of people. It's the kings, and they brought all of their guards. So he's in a panic. So he approaches it with nice guy. The part of his psyche that no one really knows, they're going, who's the nice guy talking to the king? We know Herod is somebody else altogether. You see the conversation. So the excitement came because there was real truth. The kings were pursuing. There was concern because the truth before Herod was now right on his doorstep. And he said, you tell me where he is so I can come and worship. So we see the announcement of the king had excitement on one group and concern on the other. J. Vernon McGee makes this point when he says, the scribes were the ones we have to question. I'll quote what he says. As a matter of fact, the scribes didn't even need to turn to their scrolls because they already knew what was coming. They could quote it. They knew all about the coming of Messiah. The problem was their knowledge was academic. 
And rather than being vital and personal, it was meaningless. They are examples of folk who know the history contained in the Bible and they know certain factual truths. But these things carry no personal meaning to them. Since the scribes knew the Old Testament scriptures so well, you would have thought they would have said, come on, tell us where he's at, we'll go with you right now. He, he closes his quote by saying, I wonder today how many people are really looking for the coming of the Lord. We talk about it, we study a great deal about prophecy. Would you really like to see him right now? Suppose he broke in right today where you are and into what you were doing. Would he interrupt anything? Would you like to say to him, I wish you would have postponed your visit to another time? One group was excited, another group was concerned. So I pose this question to you as we introduce the king. Are you excited to see the Lord Jesus? The book of 1 John says, if you are, it has a purifying effect if you're anticipating the Lord's return because it motivates how you live. You stand before the Lord with the desire to see him, or are you doubtful, or are you nervous? You could change that today. So that was the announcement of the king. Secondly, verses 9 to 12, we have the meeting with the new king. It was supernaturally guided, and it produced joy and worship. Supernaturally guided. That's real simple as you read, because it tells us right here in verse 9. When they heard the king... They departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, not the stable, the house, they greeted Mary, verse 10, when they saw the star, there was exceeding joy. They saw the young child, not a baby, with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream, they would not return to Herod. They departed for their own country another way. When Jesus arrived, or when the kings arrived, Jesus wasn't in a stable. Two years later. Now, I, I appreciate all the decorations, but I have a story to tell you on my youngest. So I was ministering in a church in Lansing. The lady that played the piano kept saying, why is your son hiding the wise men all the time? I'm like, well, Sandy, what do you mean? Well, I just set up the whole thing and the, the wise men are missing. I'm like, well, what do you mean they're missing? Well, he keeps moving them over by the piano and we want it in front of the church. So I said, Colin, what's up? He goes, it's not biblical. <laughs> okay. So as long as I was pastor, the three kings were always on the piano and not on the center of the church, based on what I just shared with you. So I'm glad it's here, don't get me wrong, uh, but Hallmark's been wrong for a long, long time, okay? They're two years behind, because when the wise men showed up, Jesus was about two years old. By the way, I want to put a, an ad in. Tonight when you come to see Jeremiah, David Jeremiah's film, Why the Nativity, this is also explained so Bring your popcorn and your blankets and your chairs. Well, now, we're going to have the movie here, but all the festivities, if it doesn't rain us out, will be down by the camp and in the fellowship hall. That was my advertisement. Okay, turn the remote back on. Supernaturally guided. It doesn't take a lot to explain that this was, again, a, a, a movement by God to bring people to where he wanted them to learn the truth about who he was. What I want you to focus on is what it says in verse 10. In 11, when they saw the star, they rejoiced 
they were joyful. And when they had come into the house, they saw Mary and the child. And I want you to look at the next phrase in verse 11. And they fell down and worshipped. Does anybody see what the next word was? They worshipped who? Him. Now, I want to be very respectful, but very, very firm on this. We don't worship Mary. We worship Jesus, the Son of God. I, I, there's a great tradition with, with that belief. There's a great tradition of believers there. But when I hear grown men and women um, acknowledging that they love the Lord Jesus, that's the focus of the wise men as well. They focused on Jesus. They were joyful. They were rejoicing. And it says they fell down and worshipped him. They fell down. I want to stop there for a moment. In your devotions, as you read God's word, as you share fellowship together, does Jesus move you? Does he bring tears to your eyes for what he's done for you? Can you talk about him more than you do the lion's? When you sit down to have fellowship, what's the fellowship over? And I'm the next guy to be, I'll be rooting for the Wolverines. Hopefully they can pull it out. I see them go so many times and so many times I'm dejected. But I'm the first guy to want to talk about the Wolverines. But the older I get, the longer I serve him, it's sweeter even to sit down with my own sons and we, we hash things out. We talk about the Lord Jesus. I challenge you in our new year that make your fellowship around the Lord Jesus more intense. Make him a part of your conversation. He is the focus for our worship. So it produced joy. It produced worship. Please note when they saw the child, Mary was grateful. Joseph was there, but they focused on the Lord Jesus. I want to put a plug in as the administrator of Factorville Christian School. When I consider the impact that parents will have in their kids, we are partnering with people whose children are in this school. I take second place to what you do in the home. Our teachers take second place to what you do in the home. We are simply a garnish on the plate of your raising your children. We are not an end in ourselves. So I pray for you. Your children's names are on my desk, and I pick three of them every day, and I don't my own horn about this because if I want to get to know them, I got to pray for them. And I make them a birthday card when it's their birthday. I want them to know that we want to be involved with them at a level that shows that they have value outside of graduation. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel were living the Lord Jesus to the end of their life, literally. What impacted the way they live is what they saw the reality in their parents and their parents' family and their parents' relatives. The reality of Jesus and the worship of Jesus was a very integral part of their lives. Their boss knew it. And all the pagans in Babylon knew it. And Daniel made it really clear, even in a pagan world, he was on the cabinet of the president. He made an impact, so much so, they could count on his consistency that it put him in the lion's den. Oh, we can count on Daniel praying because we see him do it every day. Okay, Dad, Mom, your kids see you pray. Do they hear you say their names when you pray? I am not here to throw a guilt trip on you. But I want to make a statement that isn't braggadocious, but until I was 22 years old in that house, 
the bottom of the hill when we had supper every night. We did that too. But um, that's all right. It's okay. He's got good lungs. Praise the Lord. Maybe he'll be a choir director. My dad prayed around the table for all of us kids. As one went to the military, he still remembered them. When one went off to college and married some knucklehead in Colorado, he prayed for her too. Then Jeannie went off, and then we went to college, and Jeff graduated from Factoryville. We were prayed for every day that we ate. Five o'clock, no matter where you were, that dumb whistle my mom blew. If we were down at the Glance or the Brennemans, we're playing softball. Now they bought, after it was a whistle, because Dad was a lifeguard, it was a stupid bell. And it was on that old ramshackle part of the house that they've now fixed up really nice, and that bell was outside the door. And even Mrs. Glant would say, Johnson, boys, it's time for supper every night. And the only time I think we had an exception was Sunday. And then it was popcorn and hot cocoa after church. My dad prayed and prayed every day. I was home until I went to college, until I was 21 years old, off the Bible, or 18. I was married a year after that, so it was, it was up until the time I left for Bible school. So that, that's just a personal plug. But the reality of who these men were came out and how they lived. The meeting with the new king, verses 9 through 12. It's interesting to note, I won't spend a lot of time, as regards to the three, the three gifts it's interesting to note when Isaiah talks about Jesus' second return that myrrh is not present when we look at Isaiah 60, verse 6, and we don't have to go there, and here's why. Gold was an example of the life of the person that was lived that the, that the, uh, that the wise men gave to Jesus. Gold signified the significance of his life. Frankincense speaks of his life. Gold is that he was the king, and myrrh spoke of his death. The first time Jesus came was to die for us. But when he comes the second time, there's no myrrh in the three gifts because there's only two mentioned. And here's why that's important. And the next time he comes, he will not die. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. And if you know him as savior, you will be under a benevolent dictator. You will serve under a king who knew no sin, who became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Verses 13 and 18, number three, the protection of the new king was warned by the angels and then was necessary due to Herod's jealousy. The warning comes very, very clearly. Verse 13 says, when they departed, behold, the angel of the Lord, this is after, the, uh, after all the, the kings left, the angel of the Lord, verse 13, appeared and said to Joseph, Johnson paraphrased, take your child and your son or your wife and go to Egypt. Herod wants to kill you. The narrative of the story follows through with this. Throughout the miraculous process of God continuing to oversee and protect Jesus and his family, I want you never to lose out on the human element here. God does the impossible every time a virgin birth, angelic announcements to the shepherds, and then to Joseph. He covers all the bases. But I want you to remember the human element because that's very important. God does the miraculous in our lives. But I think it's amazing that he uses us in that process when we exercise simple faith in what he says that we follow through on it. Remember, 
God does the miraculous. We simply need to trust him and obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. You see, Joseph couldn't have motivated an angelic appearance. That was all God's doing. He couldn't guide three kid kings 900 miles away from Babylon to announce 500 years ago we knew this was going to happen. That was all God. But it was time for Joseph to take Mary into his home and take her just the way she was. When he said, go to Egypt, he didn't have to say, well, can you make a cart? Can you give me a train? Can you fly me there? Nope. That's something you can do. The salvation of a soul is up to the Lord Jesus. All we have to be is faithful in, in living the Lord Jesus and then obeying his word and living that. And he does the miraculous. That's the takeaway when it comes to the protection of the new king. The interesting thing about what we read about what happened after Herod got news of what took place with the three kings, they didn't come back. And the Bible records that he murdered all these kids. Some commentators have said there's no proof of this. However, when you look at the fact that Herod killed his own wife, his three sons, and all his relatives, this was not news in Bethlehem because the chaos of the Roman Empire, if a small town like Jerusalem and then Galilee and Nazareth had someone who was a despot come in and take the lives of 10, they think now in a city of 500, maybe 20 young men were, or young babies were killed. Why is that a significant thing? Well, just because it wasn't put in all the papers doesn't mean the people and the passage of Scripture didn't prove it happened because it just reinforced the fact that God was protecting Jesus once again because he was the only child that lived in Jerusalem that night because God miraculously gave him an out. God is always interested in doing the miraculous. We need to do the simple things like obey him. Last but not least, we're going to look at the closing statement that we have in this chapter, and that is the providential experience or the providential care of the king based on what Jesus, as the Son of God, was. I lost a page in my notes. That's why I'm thumbing back and forth right now. <laughs> the providential care of the king in verses 19 to 23, and we'll wrap this up with that. It's providential because when you stack all the blocks and the dominoes together, what took place in those verses is we understood the angelic protection. The angel of the Lord always showed up. God delivered, uh, God delivered Mary, Joseph, and Jesus at each stage. The interesting thing as we close here, it reinforced the continuing redemptive plan of God. Secondly, it confirms the absolute authority and power of God to fulfill prophecy. I won't list everything for you this morning because my wife said that wouldn't be good because you'd all go to sleep. Maybe some of you wouldn't. She looked at my notes and she shook her head. She goes, too many notes, too many notes. So let me suffice it to say this. Over 26, 27, up to as many as 30 examples in the Gospels compared to what took place in the Old Testament confirms Jesus is who he says he is. Every time God said it was going to happen, it happened. The miraculous did take place, but the amazing thing is the complete story of Jesus' life in main features, events, accompanies, incidents, the minutest details God answers to a T. Why is that important for you as we close? 
because we can trust what God says. We can see that in the, in the plan of salvation that God had ordained things long before so that we might know him. There's a story of a single mother who worked hard to make ends meet as she raised her only son. There was no father in his life, but she loved him dearly and did the best she could with what she had. The young man eventually graduated from high school and enlisted in the service. Each month he would send his check home to his mother, now that he is able to help her. After many years, he returns home. He walks up the front of the old house that he was raised in. On arrival, he finds his mother still struggling, eating just one meal a day and only staying in one room in the home to keep the heat bill down when it got cold so she'd sit by the fire. He was beside himself as he asked his mother what she was doing with the money he was sending her. Confused, she looked at him and responded, I don't know what you're talking about. But then went on to thank him for the lovely card she was receiving from him each month. She took him by the hand, walked him into the kitchen and showed him a large section of the kitchen wall where she had covered the wall with the colorful pieces of paper that her son was sending her which were the checks every month because she didn't trust the banks. She didn't know what a checking account was. Upon closer inspection, the private realized his mother had saved all the colorful checks from the military that he'd been sending her over the years. She had all the money she needed to live but could not access it until it was deposited in the bank. Living a simple life and only using cash, she was untrusting of the banks. Therefore, she had no concept of a checking account or placing her son's checks into a savings account. I love the trees at Christmas and the cards, and I love giving presents. But as F.B. Myers stated, the miraculous stands before us in history to show us as believers that God's serious about the redemptive plan that there's nothing overlooked that's done for the Lord Jesus as we stand for the truth because four men in Babylon made this story possible because they were living, willing to give up their lives for the truth of who God was. These are nice reminders that we celebrate Christmas every day as believers. So I close with challenging you this. The power of a godly testimony can never be underestimated. Second, the focus and foundation of our faith is always and should be Jesus. Church is great. We can have a great program. We can have great music. We can have a beautiful facility. But it's all about Jesus. Because when he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw men unto myself. We don't need the Mormon Tabernacle Choir for the Holy Spirit to save people. And theologically, as I make that statement, I'm not sure the Holy Spirit always works there because they don't know who he is. You can write me about it later and we can talk over coffee. My point is this. If Jesus is the focus, he promises to deliver the goods if we put him first. You know the old saying of joy, Jesus and me and nothing in between. Jesus and others and then you. Thirdly, simple faith should never be underestimated. Chapter 3 revealed, or chapter 2, bless you. Chapter 3 revealed this principle over and over and over. First and foremost, Joseph and Mary in the birth of Jesus. In addition to their responses to move as they were warned, 
This reinforces the fact that God desires to work in and through men to accomplish his purposes. We enjoy a greater degree of joy as we grow in our faith through his word and allowing him to lead us. I would like to reinforce what I had started out this morning to share with you. If you are here this morning and you're a traditional Christian, I challenge you to become a relational Christian. You know, it's interesting to look at the scribes and the Pharisees when Jesus, or when, excuse me, the three kings showed up. Why did, the, why did Herod have to go and ask them to tell him what was going on? Why weren't they the first to say, hey, you know, in a couple of months, this is going to happen? They had head knowledge, but they didn't have a heart relationship. If you are here today and you've had that knocking at your heart's door, what will I do with Jesus? Believers. Keep your focus on him. If you're without the Lord Jesus, the Bible says, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Do you want rest today? Do you want peace of mind? Because the peace on earth that comes, that Hallmark talks about, is only possible in the life of a person who opens their heart to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for what we believe as Christians. Thank you for the miraculous work that you performed so that we could read about it today, but it's not something that goes in the past and we forget about it. Help us to rehearse it. I ask that your Holy Spirit would move in the heart of men and women this morning, that if there would be one here today that is tired of restlessness, tired of pain, fearful of the future, that they will lean on Jesus. Because we know that he will not cast out any who come to him. Thank you for the reminder of the announcement of a new king, the protection of a new king, and that the fact that we have a king that loves us, that came in a humble abode and took our place, we can celebrate Christmas every day. We pray that you will guide us tonight. Help us to have a great time of fellowship in our Sunday school class for those that will remain. Guide us in our lives as you guided others so that we would know the joy of serving you. And I pray this all in the name of our precious Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this opportunity to hear the word preached at Factoryville Bible Church. Factoryville Bible Church is a non-denominational church in Athens, Michigan that seeks to share the good news of the gospel through a number of ministries in the area, including Factoryville Christian School, Camp Elvin, and the Passive Forward Shop. To learn more about the ministries of Factoryville Bible Church or to support the mission of our church, visit our website at factoryvillebiblechurch.com. Thank you.